Hey, this morning as you begin, I want to introduce you uh, to someone. This is John Dixon, not to be confused with John Dickerson, who used to be the pastor of Cornerstone Church, but John Dixon. And John Dixon teaches at Macquarie University in Australia. And in 2001, John Dixon was approached and invited to join a research study. The research study was setting out to study the origins of the virtue of humility. Where did humility come from, and how did it come to be something that we value or take seriously? And uh, Dixon jumped at this opportunity, and he sat down with a friend a few weeks later and was telling him about the subject, said, hey, I'm going to be studying humility. And like any good friend, his friend looked at him and said, well, at least you have the objective distance from the subjects. So as he went out and studied humility with his other professors, again, this is a secular university and a secular humanities department, they came up with a definition of humility. And they said that humility is the noble choice to forgo your status and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. That's kind of long and cumbersome, and so they kind of summarized it, and they said, in other words, to hold power in the service of others. That's the essence of humility. And what they found, though, is they went back and studied the history of our world is that humility hasn't always been a virtue that was admired or pursued. In fact, throughout most of Western history, you think about the great nations and empires that ruled the world, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, and Greece, in none of those empires was humility a high value. Outside of the Hebrew people and the Bible— You actually don't have any place in literature in the ancient world which actually values humility. In the Greek culture, the only place that humility was valued was when you were standing before the gods because the gods could kill you. Otherwise, humility wasn't anything that you should look up to. In fact, in the Greek world, the highest value was love of honor. People who were the most admired, people who were the greatest, they were people who loved their own honor. Think about people like Alexander the Great and the people who were heroes at Sparta, people whose lives were included in books like the Iliad and the Odyssey. All of these people, none of them were marked by humility. And so as these researchers began to study what happened to bring us from that day to today, because today, even if you aren't a person of faith or a religious person, humility is a high value. When you end up around somebody who's great and knows they're great and always reminds you that they know they're great, you go, I don't want to be around that person. That person's egotistical or proud or full of themselves. And so no matter what you even believe about God, humility is a high value. And they go, how did this shift from that world to this world? And what this group of professors, Dixon's a follower of Jesus, but the rest of his colleagues are not, what they found was they could trace the change to a moment in time, to a place, in fact, to a person. And what they found is that the world changed how it thought about humility because of what happened with a teacher from Nazareth, who we know as Jesus. These predominantly secular researchers discovered that the world changed what it thought about humility because of the life of Jesus. Not just his life, a moment in his life, the cross. They said that Jesus was revered and admired, and then he went to the cross, which was not a humble thing, but a humiliating thing. No great person would allow himself to be crucified. And so the world was forced to examine, what do we think about humility 
and what do we think about Jesus because we can't hold on to both. And they chose in that era to change the way they thought about humility because of the death of Jesus. Again, these are not even people who believe in the divinity of Jesus or even the truth of the Bible. They're just looking at history. And they traced actually the first place in literature where people began to write about this in the book of Philippians chapter 2, the words of the Apostle Paul, where he said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So essentially, push away the love of honor stuff. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And in their research study, they they even brought in some secular experts on Western culture, one of whom we're going to hear from right now as he talks about the significance of Jesus and the way we look at humility. Here's what he said. Out of this inversion of high and low, which is focused entirely on the uh, death of Jesus, the inversion of high and low in social life follows. So everybody in our culture now dislikes people who are proud. We don't think we should like them, but in antiquity you were supposed to admire them, and did. And everybody now admires humility. And of course we accuse each other of um, being bogus about it and and secretly aspiring to grandeur while only pretending to be humble. So are you saying, even in non-Christian Western culture, the attraction we feel toward Humility comes from the Christian tradition. Entirely, yes. And and along with it goes the contempt for people who only pretend to be humble. We only like people who actually are humble. It's fascinating stuff. And as we're in a series this month talking about more, aspiring to more, longing for more in our life with God and our life in 2018, thinking about the kind of relationship we want to have with him. I want to suggest to us this morning that we will never get to more until we understand what it means to be humble. That you never find someone in our world who we look back on and go, man, they're living a life that's worthy of following or being admired apart from this discipline apart from this habit of their heart. And this morning, I want to talk about how we get to that. I want to recap our series so far. In week one, we talked about how how we need to have an encounter with Jesus, not an encounter with someone's ideas, but an encounter with Jesus, and then take the steps that he marks out for us. Last week, we talked about the value of significant relationships that, that we can't experience more apart from other people, and that God uses those relationships to make us more like him. And we challenged you guys to get involved in community groups. And I said, between 40 and 50 of you signed up to get plugged in. Well, this week, we're going to talk about humility and serving others. And here's the the main idea, that following Jesus, if that's something that you aspire to or you're looking towards, following Jesus will move you away from selfishness and into surrender. 
When we begin to follow Jesus, the path that we walk, following where he's going and where he's been, it moves us away from selfishness and into surrender. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to open it up to the book of Matthew. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Matthew is the first of four biographies of the life and teaching of Jesus. It's my personal favorite. And in Matthew 16, we're going to read a passage, but I want to give you some context to what's happening. Right before the passage we're going to read today, a conversation happens between Jesus and his disciples. And the conversation is around who people say that Jesus is. There was a lot of conversation around him even in that day. And some people said that he was the prophet Elijah come back from the dead. Some people said that he was the reincarnation of his cousin John who'd been beheaded by King Herod. And Jesus said, well, that's great that people say that about me, but who do you think that I am? And one of his disciples, Peter, who was always first to answer and last to think, he was kind of a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. Peter said, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And, and Jesus said, it's on that truth that I'm going to build my church. And as, and as that went on, Jesus began to have a conversation with his disciples about where he was going and about what following with him would include. And so this morning, I want to share with you three observations about following Jesus that come from this passage. And the first one is this, that the direction that Jesus is going is often the opposite of the one we want. The direction that Jesus is going is often the opposite of the one we want, the one that we're interested in. And we see this play out in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus begins talking to his disciples and he says this. He says, So from that time, after that conversation about who he was, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so Peter, again, the the talk first, think second guy, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, it's, it's a pretty shocking moment to go from, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, to I'm going to die. And then somebody like Peter have the gall to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. I mean, even if you don't believe that he's the son of God, it's a pretty bold act to do that to somebody who's such a respected teacher. But if you think about it, Peter was incredibly frustrated. He was incredibly surprised and shocked with this whiplash of a conversation because he and Jesus have been talking about who Jesus was and Peter has a whole framework for that. You see, Peter said, you're the Christ, which we don't think much of. We think of Jesus Christ and Christ being his last name. It's not his last name. Christ is, is another word for Messiah or promised one. And Peter had an idea in his mind of who the promised one was because he'd seen other people who claimed to be the Messiah before. Previous messiahs followed a fairly typical pattern. They began to teach like Jesus had. They were good teachers and acquired a crowd. Because the the people were oppressed by the Romans, the teacher would turn that crowd into an army and that army would attack the Romans. And the Romans, being the powerful, powerful world-conquering government, would pick that leader up, take him, kill him, and then the crowd slash army would scatter. And so Peter was hoping that Jesus was a better Messiah than that who wouldn't be killed. 
And so when Jesus goes, I am the Messiah, he's like, awesome, we're going to conquer the Romans. And then Jesus goes, actually, I'm going to let people kill me. And he's like, excuse me? That's not what I was thinking. That's not what my plan was. And we think about Peter and we go, man, what a knucklehead, what an idiot. But how many of us have had moments with Jesus where you had an idea or a framework of how life was going to go? You had a plan. And then Jesus came in and goes, well, here's my plan. And you go, that's not what I was thinking. That's not what I was hoping for. That's not how I saw my life going. See, following Jesus means that often our plan is the opposite of his plan. And I speak from personal experience. In 2016, I I got a call from a church in Prescott, and I began to get the sense that God wanted me to leave my life in Phoenix, where I'd been for 14 years, and he wanted me to move here. And it was a little bit like Peter. I've been to Prescott. It's beautiful. It's snowy. It's great. But I never envisioned on living here. I have a plan, Jesus, of where my life is going to go, and it never involved Prescott. And I began to have this conversation with, with God about my frustration over that. And as I read this passage this week, I began to reflect that I'm not that different from Peter. Because I was frustrated, and I was telling him how frustrated I was. And I was willing to go to great lengths for that. I'm going to ask my friend Josh to come up here right now and help me with something. While Josh comes up, you notice I have a brand new table I'm teaching from the day that Josh built because I can't build that kind of thing. So uh, thank you, Josh, for your handiwork this morning. Um, If you want to clap for him, you can, because that's a pretty nice, sturdy table. Now, uh, now, Josh, we've been talking about this passage for the past week or so as a staff, and, and, um, and I, I told you how shocking it was that, that Peter would, like, pull Jesus aside. So this morning, I want you to help the people experience this. And so I want you to pretend like you're Peter and I'm Jesus, or like I'm a friend of yours who's just being a knucklehead, and you're pulling aside to rebuke. What would that look like? So, hey, we got to go talk. To okay, you know, pull me over here. Okay, you pull me to the side, and then we'd have a conversation, okay? Well, can you imagine that to Jesus? Can you imagine like grabbing Jesus by the, by the arm and go, hey, Jesus, hey, 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 let's talk about this. I'm going to correct you. And then what happens is Peter, you know, pulls him to the side and Jesus goes, no, let's come back over here and let's have a conversation. Okay, Josh, thanks very much, man. You, you laugh at it, but I think all of us have done that before. We've had a moment in our life where we thought we had an idea of how life was going to go. We had a plan in our mind of what Jesus wanted. And then we came face to face with where our life was actually going and what God was actually doing. And many of us, if we're truly honest, have grabbed him by the arm and pulled him to the side and said, Jesus, that's not how this is going to go. That's not my plan. That's a sobering admission to make but I think we have to face the reality that many times in our lives, the way we wanted to go was the opposite of the way Jesus wanted to go. And I wonder if Jesus at times has tried to say to us, get behind me, Satan. Not that we're literally the embodiment of the devil, but the direction that we're going is not Jesus' way, but it's Satan's way. And he's calling us out. And he's rebuking us. In the same way we tried to rebuke him to say, this is the direction I want you to go. And if you want to follow me and you want to be like me and you want to discover the life I have for you, then this is the direction we're going to have to go together. The second observation I have about following Jesus is this. 
that following Jesus includes holding a funeral for our pride and control. Following Jesus includes holding a funeral for our pride and for our control. After that little rebuke back and forth, Jesus speaks these words to Peter and his disciples. It says that Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's a very well-known scripture. It's also recorded in Luke 9, 23. I memorized the version in Mark, Mark 8, 34. But as I was studying it this week, I started looking at different translations of the Bible. The Bible was written originally in Hebrew and in Greek, and we have multiple translations in English that have been translated with different purposes, some trying to be perfectly accurate and really clunky to read, others trying to be really easy to read and maybe um, capturing thought by thought. And I looked at several of these, and they began to help me understand the full meaning of this passage, like the New Living Translation, which says that if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. The Amplified Bible reads this way. If anyone wishes to follow me as my disciple, he must deny himself setting aside his selfish interests and take up his cross, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come and follow me, believing in me, conforming to my example and living, and if need be suffering or perhaps dying because of faith in me. And then finally, Eugene Peterson's the message. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. See, when you read all of those, you get this range of meaning which makes you understand that if you're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be a very hard moment for you if you're a proud and controlling person. Because you can't follow Jesus and maintain that pride and control. He's going to invite you to a funeral for that so that you can leave that behind. And that's why I said that following Jesus moves us away from selfishness and into surrender. And surrender in American culture is a four-letter word. Right here, it's about a nine-letter word. But in our culture, it's a four-letter word. It's a word we don't like to use. It's a word that we avoid using. But if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to come to terms with surrender. And this is why, for me, I find the idea that you can be a mature Christian and always insist in your own way as an oxymoron. I've been in multiple churches in my life in multiple states, and what I found again and again that's so shocking is that the people who, through experience and age, should be those who who gain the most respect and honor are often those who are still insisting on their own way. You cannot be a mature Christian and have it be all about you. You cannot be someone who has gone the distance with Jesus and still be someone who is insisting on your own way. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, it's going to take three things. First, you're going to have to deny yourself. And again, in an American world, in a 21st century American culture, self-denial is not a popular subject. You won't find it on the pages of the New York Times bestseller list or on the top of the Netflix queue. No, deny yourself is an unpopular idea. A few, a few years ago, Rick Warren wrote a very popular book called The Purpose Driven Life. And it begins with the very best opening sentence of any book I've ever read. The first words in his book, which sold over 50 million copies, is this. This is not about you. 
This is not about you. It's amazing that so many people bought a book that starts like this. But he's saying, if you're going to live a life on purpose following Jesus, the one thing you need to know is this is not about you. Again, this is not a message I expected a lot of claps during. But Jesus says, deny yourself. Then he says, take up your cross. It's so funny that that the cross is the, 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 the most significant and known image of Jesus. When you hear the word Jesus, so many of us instantly think cross. But then when we think about our own lives and following Jesus, we don't think, okay, what's my cross? Or I'm going to have a cross. Or this is going to involve suffering. Or, hey, guess what? This is, this is great. Welcome to Christianity. This is me painful. But here's what you need to know. Jesus is concerned far more with your eternal transformation than he is with your temporary comfort. Jesus' concern is not with how comfortable you are today. He's concerned with who he's transforming you to be in the future. And so he's saying, hey, if you want to follow me, that's awesome. But let's be clear what that's going to be. That's going to be deny yourself. This is not about you. Take up your cross. This might hurt along the way and follow me. Not follow you. Not you be the co-pilot. Not you give me directions. Not you give me input on what I should do. No, you're following me. I'm the one leading. You're the one following. And it's a reminder for us that the best leaders are good followers first. I mean, I've never seen a sold out followers conference. I've been to sold out leadership conferences though. Everybody wants to be a leader, but nobody wants to be a follower. And if you can't follow well, you're not ready to lead. Because if serving is below you, then leading is beyond you. And that's why this is heart stuff. It's not about giftedness or talent. It's about who are you submitted to. Following Jesus means a funeral for your pride and control. And then third, I've learned from following Jesus that we can be successful in the world's eyes and still miss the life that Jesus has for us. We can be successful in the world's eyes, Jesus is going to tell us in a second, but still miss the life that he has for us. This passage in in Matthew 16 concludes this way. Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. He says, So what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? He's saying, hey, yeah, following me, it's going to involve self-denial and difficulty. But the other option is to try to find your life in the world and come to the end of your life and realize that you've missed the point. To gain everything the world promises is actually life and then realize that you actually missed what life is actually all about. And he's saying, make sure you understand what your definition of success is because following me may look like losing everything, but in the end, you'll gain everything. And in this world, the people that you may see gaining everything may be the ones who are most empty of all. What I found in being in some of the wealthiest zip codes and then traveling to some of the poorest zip codes in the world is sometimes the places that we consider to be the biggest blank holes in the world are often the places in the world where people have found the most meaning and fulfillment. 
And sometimes in the wealthiest zip codes in the country, you will find the emptiest people. You can gain the whole world and lose your soul. And Jesus is saying to us, the kind of success which promises fulfillment and fullness, it often leads us to actually more emptiness. So make sure you figure out what true success is. Make sure you figure out what true meaning is. Make sure you figure out what you really want to fill your life with and if that actually leads you to the life that you want. See, when you start paying attention to the desires you have in your heart for more, those desires will lead you one of two directions. If you want more, that pursuit can either lead you to God or that pursuit can lead you away from God. And some of us, in desiring more, have found ourselves pursuing something and gaining it and realizing we were even more empty than when we started. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who were two and three and four decades in front of me and said, Scott, I spent my life climbing the ladder and I got to the top and I realized it was next to the wrong building. Jesus says, make sure you don't gain the whole world and lose your soul. Make sure you make this all about you. Make sure you understand what I'm doing. This morning, I want to share with you a story that, that embodies some of the things that I've been talking about this morning. And I'm going to invite my friend Chris up this morning. So give Chris a round of applause as he comes on stage. You may recognize Chris. Chris plays in our, uh, our band each week, and uh, he's a little bit excited when he's up here. He kind of enjoys um, what he does. And uh, Chris, um, you came to Prescott not long after I did. What, what, what brought you here and what brought you to Cornerstone Church? Yeah, actually, I got here a week before you did. Okay, one week before <laughs> me. Sorry. Um, no, yeah, back in 2016, uh, I came out uh, to Prescott for treatment. Um, I, yeah, I was just at that place in my life, and I needed that help. Uh, what brought me to Cornerstone was it was Cornerstone was basically the only church within walking distance of my treatment center, and I had no means of transportation aside from my legs. So I'm glad that we were close to you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and uh, you came, and um, you had a great experience, and um, you uh, wanted to get more involved. What happened at that point? Yeah, um, I grew up in church, so I know how important serving is for me, uh, having served with my family and friends and stuff. I know how it can bless other people. Um, so I knew I wanted to start getting back involved in that, uh, as it was starting to get better. Um, plus while I was in treatment, we had to do like 10 hours of volunteer service a week. So I was like, I can kill two birds with one stone. Um, and so I got permission from my therapist and filled out a connect card to meet with Jamie, uh, to talk about serving with the worship team. That's kind of where I, um, got involved in the story. Jamie brought, um, kind of your information to us that you wanted to get involved in serving and due to the nature of some of the things you, that brought you to, to Prescott and, and when it comes to your addiction, we felt some concern about putting you on stage. Um, because Rightfully we, so. Yeah, we, 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 we believe that character is more important than talent. And if you're going to be on stage, we want to make sure that you're um, somebody who's worth following and that you have character. And so we gave you a pretty hard recommendation that you, you couldn't serve on stage initially, but you had to essentially earn it. And so you started serving in some other places. What was that like? Yeah, um... So Jamie, you know, told me that, and it it was hard to hear at first. I had uh, been in other situations. Uh, I had dropped out of college and went back home. The pastor I had there, he we had a very long-standing relationship, so he would allow me to play again. So I was like, oh, maybe I can just do this again. They'll just let it happen. Uh, that wasn't the case, um, but I understood why, and I got it, and I 
could see that you guys were right um, in that. And so I was able, God allowed me uh, to submit to your guys' authority and leadership. Uh, I served behind the scenes for about six months with the audio and uh, visual crew. Great guys back there. That's why we sound so good. They do. Here. They do a good job. Um, that, it, it's not really us. It's all them. And I'll speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and Jamie. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I, I was able to do that and eventually led to, I don't know, I guess you guys were convinced somehow. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I told you early, even just this morning that, that, um, we saw over six months that you had the, the character to serve and it wasn't about you. Nobody brought you on stage in that period. During that time, you'd often get here before I got here and you'd leave after I went home. And it didn't matter what we asked you to do, you did it with a smile. And I saw that if you were the kind of person who had the character to serve in those places, then you probably could be somebody the character to serve on stage. And so uh, about six months later, we invited you to take the next step and, and come on stage and start leading with us. What's kind of happened as you've gotten involved in serving over the last year, year and a half, in your own life and then maybe in other people's lives around you? Yeah, uh, it's been great, you know, through this, through that process um, of serving behind the scenes, even serving on stage is extremely humbling, knowing, just knowing my story and my past it, that, you know, I, I get to do this kind of stuff. Um, but I, God just did a great work in me. Uh, he brought down, or broke down a lot of the pride in my heart amongst many, many other things. And I was able to see that transformation in myself. I had a support network here um, that allowed me to talk. I could talk about things and process through things. Um, so not just personal growth, but I also uh, developed a community here, uh, really a family. Um, you know, with the issues that I've had, I haven't always had a great relationship with my own like blood family, which is it's much better now. Um, actually, going to be in Scottsdale with my family this week. Awesome. But, um, yeah, it's God, but God always, despite that, gave me a church family that I could call home, and no matter where I was in the world. And so I've found that here, uh, people who love me uh, and pour into me and take care about me and like threaten to beat me up if I relapse or something. So <laughs> um, it, it's great. Uh, we've even even just out of the worship team, we formed a young adult community group, um, which is. You know, it meets on Tuesday nights, and it's extremely encouraging. And, yeah, just I've been able to find a home and a family here. Well, I, uh, I love serving with you, Chris. Your passion is infectious, and um, your character and willingness to serve is seen in so many different ways. And so I'm grateful to see how God's using you. Um, I truly believe some of the things talked about in this message when it comes to humility, you embody. And um, thanks for sharing with us this morning. Thank you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. You know, Chris's story really embodies so many things we talked about this morning, um, that it's not about you, and that when you submit to following Jesus and you're willing to get uncomfortable, that he can do incredible things through you. So this morning, as we conclude, on the back of your handout, there's some next steps that I want to walk you through that'll turn this from ideas and concepts into real life. And the first next step is this. I want to challenge you this week to identify the edge of your humility. Identify the edge of your humility. Once you fill that blank in with the word edge, I want you to look back up here. And then I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that you're on a beach. Not snowing. It's warm. Your feet are kind of getting into the sand. You can hear the ocean. And once you have that picture in your mind, open your eyes. I want you to imagine that instead of the beach being sand, that the beach is your humility. And the ocean is your pride. 
And this week, I want to challenge you to think about what's the edge of your humility? Where in your life does humility end and pride and control begin? If you have a hard time thinking about that, here's some questions to think through. Where do I insist on my own way? That would be ocean. Where is it all about me? Where is the place where I have to be in control? Those are the places that humility ends and pride and control begins. And if you're going to step into the more and find the fullness that Christ has for you in following him, then that edge is going to need to push out farther and farther and farther. Second step, I want to challenge you this week to surrender that area to Jesus. Surrender that area to Jesus. You say, Scott, what does that, what does that look like? Well, it might look this morning when we do the final song in a second, you coming down front and praying on your knees and surrendering something to him. It might mean today that you put on your snow boots and you go for a long walk and you have a conversation with Jesus. It might mean you sit down with a friend a, a lot like Chris did and talk through how you feel about what's going on and you lay that thing down. One of the big myths I think people have believed about surrender is that surrender happens in a moment and it's done. And I've discovered that surrender is an event and a process. That you surrender something and then you keep on surrendering it. Because the problem with laying it down is that it's super easy to pick back up. You know, there's a passage in Romans where where Paul talks about us being living sacrifices and the, the old pastor quote is that the problem with a living sacrifice is it can get up off the altar. And our problem with surrender is that many of us have had moments where we laid it down and then picked it back up again. And so we have to continue to lay that thing down. The third step I'm going to challenge you to take as you think about becoming more humble, following Jesus and serving, is this morning I want to challenge you to begin serving on a Cornerstone volunteer team. Part of what happened in Chris's life wasn't just that he played F chords and B chords and G chords. It's that God used serving to transform his heart and to give him a connection and a community. And this morning, when you leave today in the lobby, there's going to be a series of tables out there that have places where you can learn more about how you could get involved in serving. And let me just make this one thing really clear. I believe in serving. I am where I am today because of a host of serving opportunities I had that started with leading a Bible study for 16-year-old guys when I was 16 that included rolling cable when I was in college and setting up a TV like this. And whether you serve on missions or you lead a community group or you're a greeter out front or you serve on the worship team, which could include cameras or lighting or computer or audiovisual, whether you serve in one of our care ministries or mobile operations, you get up early on Sunday morning and you're here after everybody leaves, whatever that looks like, it's not about you using your gifts primarily. And it's not about us getting stuff done although both of those will happen. It's about this, that we become more like Jesus when we serve. And the reason why we're calling you to serve is that we believe you will not become the person God created you to be if you remain passive. And the tendency in the American church today is to show up 1.7 times a month, sit in a seat, listen to a message, and leave. And that can be used by God in your life, but we believe you'll be transformed to look more like Jesus as you serve. And wherever that environment is, we want to help you take, take that step today. And so as you leave today, we're going to challenge you to take the next step and begin serving because following Jesus moves us away from selfishness and into surrender. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you so much for the ways that you're at work in our lives. We thank you for Chris's story and the, the place that it intersects so many of our stories that, that you've used serving, even in behind-the-scenes, unrecognized, unapplauded places and ways to transform us, to break down our pride, to build humility, to, to allow us to show the people compassion and care and to make us more like Jesus. We truly want to follow you, Jesus. We want to go where you're going. We want to be with you. We want to to be like you. But there are places in our hearts, Jesus, that, that don't honor you. There are bastions and strongholds of pride and control of self-centeredness. And many of us who've been going to church for a long time, who know a lot about the Bible, Jesus, we still insist on our own way. We still have a hard time letting you lead. And we pray that this would be a place and a day when you would begin to do a great work in us. We pray that today would be an event that begins a process of surrender. Yes, we want this year to be the best year we've ever had. But if it's going to be that, it's going to involve surrender. It's going to involve us following you and denying ourselves and taking up our cross. And we thank you, Jesus, for the promise that you give us that whatever we lose for your sake, we actually gain. So we pray in the places where we're afraid to surrender that you give us courage. We pray for the places that we're uncomfortable that you give us that supernatural urging and strength to take a step. And we pray that we would have stories to tell from our lives like Chris did with us this morning of how you used what we didn't think we wanted and what certainly we didn't ask for as the agency and the process to make us who we long to be. We thank you that you're at work in us and in this place. And we pray that you'd make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.